You're listening to Opera Innovations, a podcast brought to you by ABA Technologies. This month on Thought Leaders, we are talking with Dr. Terry McSween and his journey into behavior-based safety and ultimately value-based safety. So without further ado, Dr. Terry McSween. Today we are talking with Terry McSween and I am so excited to be able to talk to you today. So thank you for sitting down with me. Glad to be here. And we'll jump right in because this is a story I'm also very interested in learning about is how did you get to where you are today? Well, I, uh, I think even before I get into my story, I would just like to say that I'm, I remain excited about behavior analysis and, and it has been uh, a blessing for me to be able to, to apply behavior analytic concepts uh, in the business arena for the last 40 years. And it, it's been very, very good to me. Um, it, it really goes back when I think about where I first learned of behavior analysis, it really goes back to about 1971. There were kind of a concurrent set of things going on in my life at that time. I had just uh, failed my first semester in calculus and I was in chemical engineering and a strong engineering program at Lamar University in Texas at that time. And that was going to throw me, cause me to have to extend my engineering education by an additional year. So it was going to take me five years instead of four. Um, so and I went back and made a B in calculus the next time, by the way, just a little less partying was the simple answer to that. But around that time in 1971, Time Magazine picked B.F. Skinner as their man of the year. And I was at a grocery store one day and I saw this Time Magazine with a picture of B.F. Skinner on the cover and I bought it and took it home with me. And as I say, at the time, I was sort of considering what my career choices were going to be and what I really wanted to do. I decided if I'd have been all that interested in engineering, I would have be further along with it. Um, and, and basically, as I read that article about Skinner, that was around the same time he published Beyond Freedom and Dignity. So then I went out and bought the book um, and, and then I was hooked. Uh, and so I looked around and the best behavior analyst in Texas that I could find was Don Whaley at North Texas State University back in the day, you better known as UNT these days. And so I transferred up there. And in truth, I never took a class from Don, but I audited one of his classes. And I like to brag, I made more of those classes than he did. And I think he missed one. Um, uh, but, but at any rate, that allowed me to finish my undergraduate degree in three and a half years instead of five years. And then I uh, uh, did six months worth of construction work. And that conv convinced me I was really going to need a little additional education. Uh, probably would have been better off just to do the five years in engineering no, but no, that's, <laughs> I can't say that. I've, I, uh, but at any rate, I, I then, as I was doing construction work and got convinced on in, in the summer in Texas can convince you pretty quick how uh, much fun going to school is. And uh, so I applied to a, a number of schools in, for graduate work. And I got into the University of Texas at Arlington in a PhD experimental program. Uh, 
and and I did a couple of years there, and I worked. They had a great behavior analyst, uh, uh, Jim Cop, and and I worked in his lab, ran rhesus monkeys, and I in other labs did worked on pigeon research. But I was really concerned as I thought about what the job market was going to be for. Uh, experimental psychologist, and it was clear that was going to stick me in academia. And truthfully, I, I, I like to work hard, but I don't think I, I really decided at the time I wasn't smart enough to really excel as an academic. And uh, uh, and also around that time, Jim Comp had sort of a pipeline to Western Michigan, and I'd stayed in touch with Don Whaley, and he and Malott, of course, were 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 still closely connected, and. Uh, so I got a letter of recommendation from Whaley and from Jim Kopp, and I applied uh, to the, to I decided I was going to leave the PhD program and go get a master's degree and to see what I could do from there. So I did that. I went to uh, Western uh, WMU and uh, I worked with Jack Michael. He, he supervised my master's uh, program. And, and as I was coming toward the end of my or probably midway through my master's studies, I, I I had stayed close friends with a number of other students who'd come up from Texas, uh, Tim Wysocki, um, uh, Ken Stevens, Larry Morse, and a number of others, most of whom have remained active in the field. And, and somewhere along the way, I heard that one of uh, Malat's key lieutenants was going to be leaving, and he didn't know it yet, but I did. And so I, uh, I arranged to get an internship and sort of be really familiar with that system uh, uh, so that when the previous leader of that, that was a personalized system of instruction called SEP, it was a PSI Keller model program uh, that was stood for the Student-Centered Education Project. And uh, uh, I, I positioned myself to to move to the head of that operation and run that for Malat, and then I and I applied for the PhD program, having Whaley's letter in my file, and uh, that that was uh, that worked out pretty well for me. And also, what worked out well at the time, uh, Malat was doing this research on his behavioral supervision system, which really was a process where you would meet with an advisor. I would, as a PhD student, meet with the master's students once a week, and I'd meet with Dick Malat once a week, and we'd set targets on my uh, graduate research. And so as a result of that, I was able to finish my PhD in three years. And uh, uh, I guess that kind of brings me to the end of of that whole of my of my school days. Also, towards the end of that, a couple of th other things happened. Uh, Tom Gilbert published his book, Performance Engineering, and uh, it, it got adapted in one of the systems uh, courses at Western, and I was able to TA in that course. And, and Malat had a, a behavioral systems course. It was two semesters long. And uh, of course, I'd taken that before we got into the, the, the Gilbert stuff. And so I'd become interested in systems and, and 
business. And I began to see that many of the things that I thought were challenging for people in life uh, were related to how happy they were at work and how successful they were at being able to earn a good living. Everything from uh, parenting to success at marital relations seemed kind of tied back into that. And, and so I, uh, and, and we also began to bring in, there were a number of consulting firms that were starting to apply behavior analysis at, at that time. Uh, Larry Miller had started the, the organization called, uh, uh, let's see, BS Behavioral Systems Improvement, I think, and, and, and Aubrey uh, and, and he were working together and they let, later uh, split up and around, and they, those guys started JOBM uh, back in the day, and, and we invited those people to come talk to the systems courses. So Larry Miller, for example, came and talked at, at uh, in one of my systems classes, I think, uh, and some of the other consultants from those organizations also passed through, and, and so we got acquainted with them and sort of networked. Um, I think Aubrey did some, although I never saw Aubrey, Tom Gilbert came through uh, while I was there. So we had all this exposure to people who were working and we were able to build some networks with some of those organizations. And that ultimately led to me being able to take a position with one of those consulting firms, uh, which was actually based out on the West Coast. It was called PSI, Performance Systems Improvement. Um, there was a guy by the name of Bill Roten who probably published the first BBS study on mining, who was working in the coal mines of West Virginia at the time. And I think it's one of the first safe BBS publications in JOBM, probably the first or second issues. He came and talked to our systems class, for example, and, and they had hired another Western graduate uh, master's level student, good friend of mine, uh, Sheldon Stone. And so I, uh, I stayed in touch with Sheldon. And when I graduated, I, I basically went to work for them. But I went out on the West Coast and started working on quality and schedule improvement on with an engineering company on a project with with three other no two other consultants. Um, I did that worked with that client for about a year and while I was there it was kind of fortuitous later on somewhere somehow I got invited by uh, the, the, the a chemical engineering magazine to write an article on our work with engineers and I wrote a uh, an article cleverly entitled engineering feedback um, <laughs> and and I'm going to come back to why that was so important later on but but I got to publish that and I published it with I got stuck the president of our company his name on there Bob Lorber and so Lorber and McSween published this uh, article it's pretty well received and and I didn't think much about it added it to my resume and and around that time we had a project manager it was pretty well known that I was from Texas and wanted to go back there. And we had a project manager at the time that was working in the oil field who quit for a variety of reasons uh, and was moving back from Texas to California. And that created an opportunity for me to move back to Texas um, 
to Corpus Christi, Texas, actually, where I began to work with two other consultants on a, a project in South Texas with a company called Dixieland Field Drilling Company. And uh, this was really my first real project. I'd put materials together for the other one, but this one was sort of mine to be the project manager of. And we, we put together bulletin boards that sort of cascaded. We had a set in the office for each drilling superintendent had their uh, four graphs on on uh, injuries on on uh, uh, their, they had a maintenance checklist they had uh, uh, a rig cost and they had how much hole they made and we, we, we would we had this cascading report that rolled those things up they each had a set of graphs on the bulletin board coming into the uh, uh, regional headquarters and the, the, each rig also had a set of graphs on their their uh, four metrics um, and and we had checklists for the drilling superintendents and for the maintenance manager and for the safety manager. They each had a separate checklist and we created a process where they went out and, and did uh, toured the rigs. Uh, we tried to get them to visit every rig once a month with that, that, and that, all of their rigs, that is, that didn't quite work. The superintendents could do that because they each had a, a handful of five or six rigs, but the maintenance manager and the safety manager had to do sort of one, one they, they tried to get theirs once a quarter and the, the, the regional superintendent also would go out and visit rigs periodically, though he didn't have a separate checklist. Um, those checklists were a little different from what we would do today. And, you know, I was heavily influenced by Gilbert. And so we tended to have an, a, a large number of sort of outcomes uh, of behavior rather than behaviors that the kind of behaviors we would typically focus on in a BBS process today, although there were some. So there was probably one category with four or five pinpointed behaviors and the others would have to do with safety equipment and, and the cleanliness of the rig and uh, a variety of other, even the, even whether the tool pushers checklists were up to date in the tool pushers office. <laughs> um, and, and that project went well. Uh, we moved that organization from being in the bottom 25% to being in the top 10% of their industry. And they won that year recognition from the National Petroleum Association for most improved safety performance in the in the industry for that year. Um, but also while I was there toward the end of that project, we got a call, we the consulting firm and our headquarters was in Southern California, got a call from Brown and Root, large engineering design and construction company in, in Houston. And they had read my chemical engineering article and they were interested in uh, doing some work. So I, because I had written that article, they gave me the project. <laughs> and, and so I, uh, and, and, and I think that's a, that was an important event for me because it was kind of one of the steps in shaping me to understand the importance of marketing and how important it is to find ways to get your name out there. Um, and, and I would do more of that as my uh, career progressed. Um, also, in addition to doing the safety in the oil field and the work with engineers, 
before I left uh, PSI, I, I, I had the opportunity to do a couple of customer service projects in banking. We did a, a large Texas bank in Fort Worth, Texas American Bank. We put together a customer service program with coaching checklists for really for each customer contact point. So there was one for tellers. There was one for loan officers. Uh, there was a different set for call centers and, and, and so forth. Um, and from tech, I did that first at Texas. Then I took that to New York and we had a big project. Ted Apking had sold this project for us. He'd come on and joined uh, PSI when he graduated or shortly after he graduated. This may have been his second job, but and he started right away in banks and he actually sold one to uh, a New York bank, Marine Midland. And then he decided to leave the company and go do his own thing, form Triad Consulting and, and went on to have a very uh, successful training company. Uh, and I went on to struggle with that New York bank implementation. And, and it was a great concept and, and, and project in a lot of ways. They, they had, we, we, we put together this project that had two focuses. One side was handled by the marketing and they were creating this campaign in the media, including television ads on extra effort. And we are at the same time created this internal campaign on extra effort. The concept being we wanted to have systems and processes in place that made sure they delivered to meet those expectations that were created by the marketing department. Um, uh, that said, outside of a few, there were there there were some challenges, and I was not as successful with that bank. There were specific banks where we were very successful. There were other banks that were. Uh, um, I think felt like this was being crammed down their throat because it was something that was bought by corporate. <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm not sure, but in the end, during that time, PSI got sold and another guy, Steve Mulvaney, came in and took it over from Bob Lorber. Bob Lorber, by the way, his name might be recognized. Some people might be familiar with the, the One Minute Manager series. He and Ken Blanchard did those One Minute Manager books. Um, but anyway, so... Uh, PSI sold and I wasn't having enough success with the, the Marine Midland Bank to feel like that I should that I should continue that. And so I ended up they they wanted to turn that over to another consultant. So I gave him an orientation and I went off for my first attempt at starting my own business. Uh, and also while I was with PSI, I had I had a wonderful client and great project with Hunt Wesson Foods out in Modesto, actually Oakdale, California. I lived in Modesto, California at the time and would drive out to Modesto every day for, uh, for the project. Uh, and that was a, I became good friends. I had a great relationship with the site manager there. So when I went out on my own, uh, I reached out to him and he brought me back out and I had a nine month uh, project uh, working out there and that's a that was a great project for a single man i would go out to california i would work for a week and then i instead of flying home i would take the money that i should have used on the airplane ticket and i would go find a bed and breakfast in san francisco or san jose or mendocino or uh, uh that was a great year but also at the end of that nine months i didn't have another project and, and <laughs> 
So I did one of those rapid ramp ups where you find lists of people to call and I tried to call similar food processing organizations uh, and other companies out in the, the northern uh, part of California out in the Central Valley area. I talked with Gallo Wines and, and some of the other tomato product producers and uh, in the end, I did. I was unsuccessful at selling another project, um, and so at the end of that period, I had met Wanda Myers along the way. Ted Apking had interviewed with her around the time he came to work for us, and and uh, so I had met her through him, and she was active at, in ABA, and and I met up with her, and we began talking, and so when I when I decided it was time for me to go get a real job. I called her and she was ready to put me to work. Just to the side at that time, I, that was another sort of after this wonderful year of vacationing every other weekend in California, I had a good buddy who had just survived melanoma and he had hit a five-year mark and he worked with, he'd gone through Flying Tigers to Federal Express or, one, or UPS, one of the other delivery companies. Uh, and I had a buttload of frequent flyer points and he had great discounts at hotels. So we went to, to Australia uh, for a month. We spent two weeks in Australia and two weeks in New Zealand. And, and then I came back and went to work. But it, it, that was a, a great time and great memories with a, a buddy at a milestone in his life. Um, so I came back and I went to work for Wanda Myers. Uh, Wanda Myers had a company called Behavioral Consultant Services. And I guess I joined them in 1985, roughly speaking. And she was doing a boatload of work with DuPont. Early on, in fact, basically, when she started her company using one of those old, uh, uh, I forget, they're not the Z, before, pre-Xerox, the mimeograph machines. She had put, put together these proposals with one of the old mimeograph machines for distributing to uh, DuPont. I guess DuPont was talking with some others, and I'm not sure. Uh, I think Wanda had been through, Dick Malott had done some some workshops, some public workshops way back in the day on uh, behavior modification in business industry. One of his little booklets even was, was called that. And I think she actually went through one of his workshops. Uh, her, she had a master's degree from Texas A&M, I think. It was really pretty much self-taught on behavior analysis other than she, so she went to that workshop and then she hired a number of guys from uh, Western and, and uh, uh, West Virginia. And she, she hired uh, um, uh, a number of guys, Joe Savage from Western uh, and, and Michael Pelkey from, from Western and, and uh, a, a couple of others whose names escape me at this point. But, but they were there when I got there um, and her big project with DuPont was to go through the organization and she had a three day performance management course and she did a boatload of those. I did a good number of them, <laughs> but, but, but that was basically her business. And, and, and after about three, after I'd been with them probably about three years, we began to get all that training done and we didn't have anything and we hadn't really been successful. In fact, I think part of why Wanda brought me on in was to kind of help them move towards a more implementation-based 
model and a little less with a little less focus on training where we, where we would work with people on developing a project plan uh, doing an analysis and developing an implementation plan tracking and the, the, that implementation and increasing feedback along the way on critical behaviors uh, so we sold one of those to a local dupont site but we were never really able to leverage that throughout the DuPont organization. We had a couple of other implementation efforts uh, with Eminem Mars and Waco and a few other places. Um, and at any rate, at the end of five, it, one of the things that happens when you're in an organization like that at the and, and the pie begins to shrink it is that it gets it gets very intense uh and, and, it, and there's there's a lot of uh uh negative verbalization going and i just decided i needed to go do something different so i left wanda's employee around 1990 and founded quality safety edge with my good friend judy stowe who i sort of connected with through uh texaba uh, she was a, a, a behavior analytic clinical psychologist P, under a PhD, I think at UNT or North Texas State at the time with Don Whaley, came from Western before that. I think she might have moved to Texas uh, when Don came down from Western. Uh, anyway, we started the program in 19. 90 and Judy had a longtime client. She'd been working as a contract sort of training manager, if you will, for Selenese uh, in Corpus Christi. They had a, a large R&D facility with a pilot plant down there. And um, uh, so she brought me in to do performance management workshops. So we, at my first business, I had a couple of those workshops to do. Um, but it was a scary time. This was, again, my second time at trying to go out uh, out on my own. And um, I remember quite clearly being $40,000 in debt before I got my first paycheck. I had some, had some contracts uh, and I believed that they were going to come about. I borrowed money from my mother. <laughs> I thought I had it all lined up. I'd had a condo while I was out in California and I sold it. And so I thought I had all this money stashed in the bank to get this thing off the ground. And then I learned what the government means by the term recapturing depreciation. And, and it turns out all of that money I thought was mine, 90% uh, of it belonged to the government uh, because I had taken the depreciations and taxes over the years. Um, but anyway, so I had a small number, a little bit of income with selling aids, and we did, we expanded that, did some other training needs assessments, and uh, uh, somewhere along the way, I published a book on giving performance, uh, published a chapter in a book on performance appraisals, and that led me to be brought back in to Brown and Root once again to work with uh, another guy that was doing some work on their appraisal process and do some training basically on pinpointing and and carrying on performance discussions as part of a, a performance appraisal process and um, so th these were just sort of little projects that were breaking along the way and then Wanda came called me one day and she had another project DuPont wanted her to come in by this time Tom Krauss was out 
uh, out in California promoting behavior-based safety very broadly across the chemical petrochemical industry. And DuPont had seen that they, they, you know, had sticker shock after talking to Tom, but knowing Wanda was talking uh, sort of the same game, she called and they called her to see if she could do something similar. And so she called me uh, and basically gave me that client so that I was able to do a safety project with DuPont. And this was roughly 1991. And the agreement I and I, so I developed a set of materials to use in designing and implementing uh, behavior based safety. Um, with DuPont in 1991. John, uh, Wanda and I co-owned those materials. That was part of our uh, agreement. Um, and that also led her to, to after that, uh, for the rest of my time with QSE and Wanda's time with QSE, she worked for me uh, after I had worked for her from 1985 to 1990. And it was just a whole different set of dynamics. It was much easier for me. <laughs> Uh, probably challenging at times for her, um, but but really that was a, a, a great relationship and Wanda and I worked together for, for many years. In fact, she continued to work. She was working with uh, Centerpoint Energy uh, basically when she went into the hospital for back pain and learned she had lung cancer and passed six weeks later. Uh, so she was with me the entire rest of our life and really was is the first article, Arthur on up. Uh, article we published in JOBM. And I know you went into it a little bit, but I am interested in hearing a little bit more about what QSE did for its clients. The bulk of our work was in the, the area that, that we broadly call behavior-based safety. And uh, it, that, that the meaning of that probably evolved somewhat over the time that I was working in it. But basically it, it fell into a, a pretty standard set of steps. Of course, we'd always start with a, an organizational readiness assessment. And that is, uh, you know, my approach to behavior-based safety was we were going to install a process that brought employees in to sort of actively manage this thing. So in the readiness assessment, we wanted to make sure that the organization would be able to support that kind of a process and 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 really it boiled down to looking at a couple of things the first was the level of trust that the employees had in their uh, leadership if if there was a high distrust then that was a red flag and and it could be a a no-go decision I, i remember one paper mill in particular where we went in and the employees refused to work with us. And they said, and the reason is our management, they talk about safety and they want us to go do this, but they're not taking care of the facilities. And we went out and our, the, the site manager had assured us that safety related work orders were all looked at, reviewed and addressed within 48 hours. And uh, the the union members we were talking to said they're just blowing smoke and they took us out into the facility and they showed us safety issues that they were having to work around that they said had been turned in on work orders in the past and shown completed and yet here the hazard still existed in the workplace and we actually walked away we did not take that contract well we didn't take it then 
Uh, three months later, we got a call back from the same, from the safety manager at that site. And he says, the union officials asked me to reach out to you. They're ready to sit down and work with you. Now they brought in a new plant manager and he had taken care of business and, and that built the trust back up to a point, uh, where they were ready to sit down and work. And that's really sort of the two criteria, primary criteria in the readiness assessment, for us to proceed was one, uh, the, the, that the employees said, yes, we're willing to sit down at the table and work with you and work with our leadership to create a safer workplace. Uh, and then secondly, it was the extent to which the leaders did seem to be taking care of business, that is addressing hazards in the workplace and really trying to provide a safe place to work. You know, the, you can break that down and there, there are some micros, uh, you can get into the weeds on either of those, but those broadly speaking, those were the two issues that would uh, flag whether the project was going to be a no or no go for us. Then once leadership had signed off and decided to pursue it and we'd got an agreement on the part of employees and taking care of all the contractual issues, we would, during that assessment, another thing we would do is try to identify informal leaders in the workplace. And we would then approach sort of the people who got nominated most often, most broadly across the facility and, and invite them to sit on a team that was going to plan the the BBS process. And uh, once that, and, and, and they, they had to volunteer, not only did they get nominated, they also had to, to, to volunteer and agree that this is something they'd, they'd be interested in participating in. And they had to be sort of in a position where the organization could release them to participate or maybe schedule them so they could work on days so they could participate in our design process. Uh, after that, the steps were pretty standard and that we'd go through in working with that design team. The first step would be analyzing the injuries from the last three to five years. We typically didn't do that as part of the assessment. We made it part of sort of the self-assessment exercise with the design team because we found, a, a, again, our approach to building employee buy-in and ownership for this process was for them to build it. And we found they had a lot more uh, ownership of the checklist if we went through the process of looking at every injury that had occurred for the last five years and talking about the behaviors that could have prevented that injury from occurring in the workplace. Uh, once we had identified those, we typically tried to take kind of a Pareto approach and we'd try to look at the 20% of the behavior safety practices that would have prevented 80% of the injuries. Wasn't quite that clean because we also weighted it in terms of severity. So we'd look to make sure we had the, the behaviors that would prevent lost workday cases or uh, more serious injuries in the top two or three slots in each of the categories on our uh, checklist. And then we would have, then from there, it just became a frequency issue. So uh, the most frequent would be the third and the next frequent would be the fourth and so on after the first couple being those related to that may have occurred only once or may even been only a near miss, but the potential severity of an injury resulting from failing to routinely perform that task was, uh, it meant it was high priority in terms of our observation process. So once the checklist, so that, you know, that's one of the key sort of foundational issues 
for BBS is to have a, a checklist that is really created to address the hazards in the workplace. And they're different. If you've got a construction site, it's different. You know, the, the most serious potential issues are likely to be excavations, working around heavy equipment at different stages, uh, falls from heights. In, in, in a manufacturing environment, they're more likely to be lockout, tagout. They can be confined space. Um, and, 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 and so each company each, each uh, location really, and many times crafts or, or different departments within a location have different behaviors that are critical to preventing injuries. Now, oftentimes at a single facility, we might spread those three or four craft checklists out and see enough overlap that we combine it. We, could all, all, we always preferred to have one checklist if it made sense to do so. But if they were just very distinct and discreet, then we'd try to keep them separate. Uh, uh, you know, the questions I get asked around the checklist a lot is sort of how specific do you get? And and we always tried to make that, have that answer to that be driven by the data. So if there was a specific issue or a specific step in the, in the organization um, that was just different from everything else, uh, we would leave it rather than use a broader one, uh, we would leave it that specific. So uh, we were working in a packaging company some years ago, and usually we have an item, we use a broad item like the employees work clear or, or protect themselves from sharp edges and, and pinch points or something like that. Well, at this particular packaging facility, they had a high rate of cuts and they all occurred when they were changing out slitter knives. Now, I, don't, I can't even tell you exactly what a slitter knife is. Basically, it's something that goes in the equipment that cuts the packaging material. And at some point, they get dull and they have to be changed out. And so, you know, we tried to define the behavior on how that task was supposed to be formed. And we left it specific to when changing slitter knives. Because, <laughs> and that's, that's kind of unusual for us to stick with a single behavior because usually, you know, uh, working clear of sharp edges is broader and somehow creates an important concept for people to think about in a variety of, in a wider variety of, of situations. Um, so anyway, that checklist and having that checklist be specific to the needs of the facility is, is a critical foundational piece for a VBS process. Uh, after that, we work on sort of defining the, the logistics of conducting the observations, and that is how employees are going to be recruited, how they're going to be trained. Um, usually, we would do classroom training four hours, and we would try to schedule all the employees who would agree to volunteer uh, and participate as observers in that process. Many times all employees would go through it, even if they weren't, didn't volunteer to do observations, because we found that that greatly increased their understanding and acceptance of the process, even though they didn't never really practice the skills. And of course, a good part of that isn't just the use of the checklist, it's also how to carry on a discussion of that checklist with your coworker. Uh, we would try to teach them a format for 
or a framework to use in providing feedback, which is you describe the behavior that you see, and then you describe the potential outcome. If it's safe or if it, it particularly if it causes you concern, you talk about how doing it that way could result in them being injured. And we said all concerns are valid. It may not be right. And they may con con convince you to, to change it, but we tried to ha have sort of a stringency criteria. So if the observer, whether or not they were familiar with the job, they, they, they saw something that they thought could potentially injure that employee, we wanted a, a discussion of it. And if they agreed it was an issue and the employee couldn't serve it, then it went on to the, there was a special place in the comments of the observation form so that the safety committee at the end of the month could pull those up and look at them and maybe decide whether they needed special attention or not. Um, but that whole process from where to pick up the observation checklist, and oftentimes we'd place bulletin boards in different parts of the work area, uh, Oftentimes you use those bulletin boards also to post graphs of feedback, Pareto's showing where the concerns were, uh, run charts on the level of participation or number of observations, uh, or sometimes even uh, if they were targeting a specific imp improvement on a specific behavioral item, sometimes we'd even post graphs of that item showing you know the target for improvement and where they are uh, and sort of what the what the trend is over time until they hit until they hit that target and uh, then they would typically switch it and change uh, change it to something else which sort of leads to the, to the third part after the checklist is created and the observation process is defined and and you begin training observers you also need a a safety committee to oversee the process and really do two kinds of problem solving. You want them problem solving how well the process is functioning, looking for areas where there's not ob observations taking place, for example, and encouraging more observations or more participation in ob as well as problem solving the safety issues that are identified through that data. And we also wanted to, it, toward the end, we were making a very concerted effort to make sure that the safety committee was looking at that data and really making a discrimination between the items that would result in recordable injuries versus those where there was a high potential for a, a fatality or a, a serious lost workday case kind of event. Um, and, and then and we also you know, channeled, we, we typically on the committee have a leadership liaison who is sort of responsible for going back and forth, taking, doing reports and updates on the process to leadership, and also uh, taking those kinds of issues where we felt that the environment needed particular uh, attention from leadership just to ensure safety. Um, you know, they, they, that team was also responsible for really sort of enhancing the reinforcement associated with the process and creating celebrations when when they hit new levels of participation or when they address safety issues or hit targets in uh, particular areas. Um, and, and again, that oftentimes was sort of in coordination with leaders since that leadership attention was ultimately what a good bit of the where a good deal of the reinforcement came from. Um, so that's how I would describe that was the bulk of our services. We did some other kinds of, of training needs assessments and leadership. Uh, um, I guess maybe the piece of the behavior based safety that I didn't mention is usually there was also a leadership component 
where after the process was implemented and after the leaders were trained in how to do the observations, then we did an additional module with leaders, uh, really just to work on uh, their individual action plans on the things that they were going to do to demonstrate how important safety was to them in the workplace. And that could be related to supporting our BBS process, or it could be just about safety more broadly. We didn't want to limit them to just paying attention to the BBS process. We want, really wanted them thinking about how they, uh, what their behavior says to employees about their personal value for safety. Again, this is a uh, a, a good startup story because it was an important milestone for me. Uh, out of those materials, I began to work on the book. I began to, to draft the values-based safety project process. And as, after I, I was about three chapters into that, I saw, I don't know why I, uh, how I identified this particular magazine, but I submitted that, uh, I took, those chapters, introductory chapters and overview of BBS, and I turned it into uh, an article and I submitted it to hydrocarbon processing. Uh, so here's a theme from uh, chemical engineering to hydrocarbon processing. The things that were serving me were getting publications in industry journals, not in behavior analytic uh, or even safety journals for that matter. Um, uh, so and so out of this, so I got this nice publication in hydrocarbon processing, and as a result of that, I saw that. I, and again, I'm not. I was out looking how to hang out where my customers were hanging out, and and somehow I submitted a paper to the National Petroleum Refiners Association after having successfully published that article in hydrocarbon processing, and they accepted it. And they scheduled me to present with two other people. I didn't know any of them, but the host of that session and the guy who introduced me was the vice president of operations for Sitco Petroleum. And after my presentation, he came up and gave me his card and he asked me to call him. He said he wanted me to talk to the safety director for the site. Uh, and so this was my first really big BBS sale. This is a refinery that at the time probably had 1,600 employees, and it would we would end up breaking and doing you know three to 500 people at a time. So we did a series of implementation that that was a, a three-year project that was uh, significant to the success of of Quality Safety Edge. Um, the other thing I'll comment on, particularly during this time, even before those projects broke, I was doing daily contracting with Malat. Malat and I were connected through CompuServe back in the day, and I was setting daily targets on cold calls and, and writing, and so that I was working on this book a little bit every day, ultimately these articles in the book. Uh, so I, so I was also calling people somewhere along the way. I called on Tenneco Gas and the guy said, let's meet for lunch. And I did. When I went, I took I, it coincided with the completion of the first draft of value space safety. So I didn't have this from a mimeograph machine. I had this from Kikos, but I had 10 copies of this thing bound. And when I went to the guy, he was a, a safety manager with Tenneco uh, Gas 
pipeline company in downtown Houston. I said, look, I'm, I, I really don't have many industry contacts that I can ask this of, but I would be really honored if you would be willing to read this book and give me feedback and just take a red pen and mark it up. Anything that you don't understand, anything that doesn't flow, um, anything you can catch will help me do it better. And, and they ended up then calling me back. I mean, this was a part of my sales process. I was, now I was talking to him about business, but I do think him taking that book and actually reading it uh, at that time was a, a significant uh, uh, credibility um, builder for me and for Quality Safety Edge. So we got our second really large contract and that was with Tenneco Gas Pipeline. So we implemented a process in a pipeline that ran from Brownsville, Texas to Buffalo, New York. And I loaded in the car with the safety manager and we drove 60% of that pipeline doing the assessment over a period of a couple of weeks. <laughs> that was, uh, uh, at any rate, it, that actually I'm, I'm still proud. One of the two guys that hired me uh, is in charge of safety with Tennessee Gas, which is was a division of Tenneco Pipeline, and which has all now become Kinder Morgan, and they still have an active process. We began that process in 1993, and and he's uh, working on presenting at the Safety and Action Conference uh, in in May of this year, 2022. So uh, that's that's. There, there aren't many programs that you implement, I have to tell you, and I think I'm pretty good at it, but uh, this, is, <laughs> this is my exemplar from all my years of, of work. They still have their process in place. Um, and that's, uh, so, so that, that kind of gets me through, then comes the publication. Oh, along the way before, actually a little bit before, the values-based safety BBSP was published. Uh, I was also getting very active in the American Society of Safety Engineers. They had a local chapter that met. So I began to go and hang out with the safety people and I'd go find the person in charge of the program. And I'd say things like, Hey man, if you, you know, somebody cancels out and you need to fill a slot, call me. <laughs> I'll be glad to step up and talk about behavior-based safety or behavioral leaders or safety leadership is your choice. And uh, the other thing I did was I got to, I was, uh, I got involved with the membership committee. And so I had the entire freaking mailing list and I was calling their members to invite them, make, make see if they would come to the meeting. <laughs> but it also gave me a nice uh, uh, list uh, that I could use discreetly in some other, uh, other ways. But also, you know, that, that as I learn more about the American Society of for Safety Engineers, that's safety professionals these days, it used to be ASSE, now it's ASSP. Um, I learned that they had a national conference. And then there were, I saw I was getting their monthly publications, their professional safety magazine. And I saw something in there caught my eye. They were soliciting nominations for articles about safety written outside the safety profession. And I thought, hmm. And so, so I self, I'm big about self-promotion, by the way. So I, I promote, I sent my article in. I said, hey, I published this in hydrocarbon processing. That's an industry group outside of safety. Uh, uh, see what you think. So they selected me that year. Um, 
uh, they have uh, an award they call the Scrivener Award. I wasn't familiar with the word, but a Scrivener apparently is like a, an author, somebody who's supposed to be uh, good at, at, at writing. And so uh, in 1994, I won the ASSE Scrivener Award, and that was presented at the National PDC. A professional development conference and a, a, a funny story about that i remember as i was making my way to the podium to receive the award i saw the guy who i knew to be our our vice president of safety a great safety professional great presenter guy by the name of joel tegens and i saw him lean over to the president of our local chapter and say did you know anything about this i didn't know anything about this <laughs> and and so when i got back i got a recognition from the local chapter just for significant contributions or something. <laughs> so, uh, um, and also that, that, that was the, I, I submitted a paper. I figured, well, they're giving me an award. They probably would accept something if I wanted to uh, present. Uh, so I made a presentation there. And after that presentation, I was, I was clearly reinforced for that. I, somebody, a, a guy, a safety director with a small roofing company came up to me and introduced himself and asked me to call him later. And that read, led to another contract. Now I will say you would think that I would have a good history now, but but it turns out that's the only project I ever got from presenting at ASSP, at least at their national conference. Uh, it was kind of a disappointment, but it was uh, uh, it kept me hanging in. I I still go to PDCs. I like the local ones now better though, because they're like 300 people, which is more a comfortable size for me. The national chapter, um, you know, there's several thousand, and the audience size is bigger. It's 500 or you know maybe three to 500, but I just have I haven't ever got any work out of it since since that time. Um, so so that was all circa 1994, and right also right around this time, I was remained active in the OBM network. And the OBM network, Bill Redman. Uh, was working within, he was, I think, the first president of the chapter, I think, or second, actually, after me. Uh, I'm not even sure. It, we were a pretty informal organization in those days. Uh, but around 92 or 93, they were beginning to formalize the network a little bit more. And they invited an, uh, the membership, or at least a good portion of the membership, to participate in a strategic planning session in Florida. Um, and, and Bill Redman sort of hosted that. And, uh, and, and during that, Beth Solzer Zaroff and Mark, I think Mark Alavosius was there. Maria Malat was there, I think. Uh, what I remember was there was a group of us that went off to lunch that were, in, and, and Beth really spearheaded this. She says, if you've got an interest in, having a discussion about what we could do to promote behavior analysis and applications and safety. Let's, let's meet over at this table here and have lunch together. I know uh, Dwight Harshberger was there. I don't think Bill Hopkins was, but at any rate, around the same time, I'd been having company meetings once a year and we just come out of one of those. And one of the things we saw BST doing that we thought was working all too well for them was they were organizing these public workshops around the country and they had also begun to host a users conference and 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 so at that luncheon i began to i 
voice the interest in maybe we as a science could do something similar to what BST did in their public workshops. And Beth was the head of the Cambridge Center for Behavioral Studies at that time. And so uh, she just agreed to that. And then she, uh, she organized, I don't remember how we decided uh, how we organized it exact, exactly, but we hosted several public workshops that were heavily promoted, sometimes with the local ASSE, sometimes just by the Cambridge Center. I'm not even sure how all that worked because the center took responsibility for the promotion. But basically they had uh, Dwight Harshberger, Bill Hopkins, Beth Solzer-Zaroff, uh, Mark Alavosius, and myself. And we tried to create a series of modules. The first ones were, I thought, off the rough. Because <laughs> my concept was we'd each talk about a different piece of what I viewed as behavior-based safety with a formalized observation process and all these other components. Uh, but they each had their own spin on it. So we, we were kind of each talking about, uh, it was a little disjointed, the first, the, the first one. And then we, we linked them a little better. But it was dang hard to make that make economic sense. I suspect BS, it was a money loser for BST, except the projects they got through that. And of course, the Cambridge Center didn't have that kind of residual income. And I never got a project out of it. I don't know. I don't think anybody else. There might have been some small consulting that Beth or somebody did, uh, particularly perhaps with some of the insurance companies coming out of that. Uh, I remember Mark talking about the incentive work he did with uh, small insurance carriers at that workshop and I, I found it really interesting but I wasn't sure uh, how useful it was to the participants in some ways just until we began to get a little more coordinated and by that time we were having trouble getting them to make we were really having trouble because they were covering because we had five presenters we had the expenses of five presenters to cover and I think it was difficult for us to make that break even about this time, I had another company meeting and somebody began and it became more apparent that BST was hosting a users conference. And we began to talk about, well, could we do a user? But our number of clients was so small and so dispersed. It really we didn't see how we could really make that work. And somewhere in the context of those discussions and thinking about what we were doing with the center, I thought, you know, and I made a proposal to Betsy Constantine, who was the executive director of the Cambridge Center at the time. I said, what would you think of us collaboratively creating a conference, a, a professional conference, sort of modeled after ABBA, where we invite different people who are practicing in the safety arena to come and talk about what they do. And hopefully we can get some, some people who are actually some businesses who are actually doing behavior-based safety to come share their story. And I think I can, and I'm willing to take this on. And Betsy said, sure, <laughs> she just write it up and send it to me. And so I wrote it up and put a proposal together and sent it to her and, and she signed off on it. And we began the first uh, behavioral safety now conference in, in Houston. And I'm trying to think of what year that would have been probably 90, I think that would have been around 95, uh, uh, roughly around 93, 94, 95. And I remember we had, I had signed my life away on the contract with the Marriott Hotel, wondering if I could actually deliver 200 people. 
And then when we got to 250, they began to say, we're going to have trouble. And they ended up bringing, I remember after our lunch, they ended up bringing their whole executive staff down to help turn the room over because we really stretched uh, th their limits. We had like 300 uh, people attend an event where I was worried whether or not we could get 200 people. Um, and, and so that set us up. And I love this again. Uh, was probably, I, I think there were a couple of things I did along the way where I got really lucky in making decisions about uh, how to promote and build quality safety aids. So the articles were instrumental in the early days. I think the book really went a long way to establishing uh, my credibility in the field. And uh, then, uh, and participation in other conferences like the PDC and the National Petroleum Refiners Association. I went back and did more presentations at the NPRA too, and I also never got another project from it. <laughs> so, so, so uh, you, you seem, seem like you're getting hooked on the right things and shaping the right set. And I think broadly speaking, that's true, uh, but it still ain't easy. That's undoubtedly marketing and sales was the toughest thing I have learned to do in, in building a business. Um, BSN, uh, this was really a great concept. This was really, <laughs> this was, was one of those where I really was lucky because I was able to bring in, in that first conference, I had Aubrey Daniels, I had Scott Geller, uh, I, uh, I forget the guy's name. There was another guy that was significant with CLG, um, that Aubrey was crossways with at the time, <laughs> but, but at any rate, the thing that was so great about BSN for me was it put me on stage next to people like Aubrey and Scott and, and, and I benefited, uh, from that, from a publicity standpoint, because we're sending all of these mail outs, you know, 40,000 mails in, in the day at the, at max. This was before we shifted to email, we were literally doing, I'd get re done all this reading on, and, and there was all this thinking around when you had to send these things out, what kind of return you were going to get with each mail out. And they were all strategically timed or, around the conferences and, and, uh, um, and, and BSN worked well for us and it worked well for us really up until September 11, before September 11, we had, uh, six or 700 people in attendance after September 11, we dropped off and it, I mean, our, our conference was in October, uh, I, I remember being on the road on September 11th, going to make a call on Tyson Foods, I believe it was, some chicken uh, producing company at any rate. Uh, and I showed up to do the presentation. I was waiting in the break room, watching the news on, on television. And uh, uh, I, I remember driving home, going back to the hotel and thinking, well, maybe the flights will be back up tomorrow. The flights weren't back up the next day. So I decided, well, I had routed through St. Louis. I'll take the rental car back, drop it in St. Louis, pick up the second leg and fly home to Houston. I got to St. Louis. They still weren't 
flying uh and 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 i went to the airport there and ran through the airport say anybody want to go to houston and i found three guys <laughs> that uh rode with me back to the car back to back to houston uh but but september 11 had a significant impact on bsn and after that we dropped we probably had 250 people that year we got back up to around 300 but we really had trouble getting above 350 again after that um and we stayed at about that level and i continued that to, to manage that conference and send the proceeds through to the Cambridge Center uh, for 25 years, uh, maybe a little, maybe one or two more. I'm not going to count them up. Um, but then in 2000, we decided to roll BSN into safety in action. I had had Jim Spigner come speak. You know, we'd had a love-hate relationship with BST over the years. There was a time where I got a letter from Tom Krauss not to, about promoting behavior-based safety and infringing on their mark. I remember talking to Dwight Harshberger about whether the center would support me if I went to trial with these guys and then in the end that that in fact out, out of that I began conversations with Tom I almost went to work for him but but they came in were sponsors for BSN for a couple of years in fact they're the only sponsor we've ever had that gave us ten thousand dollars they didn't know that of course but but they, yeah those were good years um, but then after a couple of years I, I remember we had a couple of somewhat academic presentations and uh uh i mean i i love the, the work that some of those uh, people do but not all of them are the best presenters for a business market and so after after one of those where we'd had a fairly academic uh presentation and i'm not gonna mention who it was on the stage uh but bst decided to withdraw from that and furthermore the next year they sent out this nasty letter about this conference of of, of consultant wannabes and uh, oh, and scott was so irritated he carried that letter letter around and read it at the conference for years every time he'd be on stage with tom kraus he'd pull that letter out <laughs> and, yeah uh, but at any, any rate that was you know for me the publishing the book and starting and maintaining a, a very big presence in the marketplace through BSN uh, were probably the best things I ever did in, in terms of building quality safety edge. Uh, when we decided to roll it in after I had Jim Spigner in to speak, he, he said, what would you think of maybe us joining forces with our safety and action conference and BSN? And I began to get nervous about BSN by this time. One year, uh, Florida got hit with a hurricane the week before our BSN in Jacksonville, and they got the power on the Friday before our conference was to start. Um, and another year we were having the conference in Houston and Jacksonville was underwater. <laughs> and, and, uh, uh, and I was personally signing the contracts, probably personally guaranteeing $80,000 on each of these conferences. And it was beginning to dawn on me that there was some risk inherent in that. Plus we were having trouble making money. I was just barely breaking even. And I wasn't able to give the kind of money to the Cambridge center I wanted to. 
So I thought rolling BSN into safety and action made a whole lot of sense, both for the Cambridge Center and for our uh, field and for me personally. And I so I negotiated a deal to do that, and I'm still in contract contract with Decker to support that and participate in it for for a couple of more years. I think three years. We'll see if it stays in place that long, but it, it may. But damn, was that a good move? Sometimes you just get lucky because then in 2021, we had COVID and safety in action, which was scheduled to be in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, didn't happen. Um, uh, and, and then they moved it to Orlando. And I guess that maybe I'm maybe I'm a year off. Maybe in 2020 it didn't happen, and then in 2021 it was supposed to be in Orlando. And two weeks before our conference was to be held, all the hospitals were full, and we canceled that one. And in truth, there were only about 300 people registered that year, and that would have been 2021. That was last year uh, for a conference that typically had between 12 and 1600. Uh, attendees. Uh, so it's taken a big hit and I'm, I'm really thankful I had gotten lucky enough to kind of join forces and move BSN under their umbrella uh, so that I didn't have that uh, personal commitment. <laughs> well, and another question that might come up, I know we've talked a lot about behavior-based safety, but you know, not everyone starts there and especially a lot of our listeners. Mm -hmm. So one question I have is, have you ever worked in the autism field or the developmental disabilities field? And I think almost all OBMers started there. There are a few exceptions and some of them were more on the clinical side were more where others were more on the education. My, my, my personal experience was in, education. And truthfully, I worked my way through most of my graduate career working in education. I worked in a school for adolescent boys that had been kicked out of their public school systems and they, the school district had created a special facility for basically delinquent boys. Uh, actually, they had another class, I think, that was for generally pregnant girls at the time, but but uh, my work was exclusively with the boys. And so uh, while I was at University of Texas at Arlington, Jim Kopp had, had fixed, introduced me to some people at the school district there, and, and basically I worked as a teaching assistant dealing with that population. Uh, and then after I got to Western, I, I went, I, my first job in Kalamazoo was with the Cal, Kalamazoo Intermediate School District. And uh, uh, I actually worked at the Ostomo Care Center with multiply handicapped and, and, uh, and disabled uh, kids where, you know, I think uh, uh, we used to do a variety of research projects. One of the projects that was published out of that was Mike Dorsey's work on uh, use of uh, spray mist as a punisher for self-abusive behavior. And I was one of the co-authors on that work. We always had a number of different studies going, um, usually related to people's master's research in, in, in that arena. But I continued there until I ultimately I, I worked on an adolescent boys unit 
in, at the state hospital for a year. Uh, not so much on the behavioral side, that was more of the custodial care <laughs> uh, uh, for, for a year before I got into Malat systems and began to work as in uh, the PSI systems that provided you know, teaching assistantships basically for, for graduate students. So yeah, I probably spent four or five years working in education, most of that with developmentally disabled kids. It sounds like from your story too, it sounds that when an opportunity arises, you jump at it. You're like, yes. <laughs> timing is everything. That's exactly, you're exactly right. Every um, one of these, you're like, and then I did, I, this opportunity <laughs> pop up and I just said yes. And I went yeah. it. and then I tried this and, but I mean, I, I really enjoy hearing that. So, because I think especially for some of the people who are listening to this, who are wondering how to get into more of like the OBM behavior-based safety fields, it's not always this linear approach. I think those conferences remain good places, especially for people interested in getting to be, be in, into behavior-based safety. I, uh, uh, you, you know, a lot of the, the kinds of plants and the kinds of companies that go to these things are having trouble getting good people right now. And, uh, you know, you might have to take an entry-level position and learn something about the business, but I think then if you've got a behavior analytic background, you know, there's there's opportunities for companies that are looking to, to sustain and improve their BBS processes. Uh, and then there are companies with good leadership development programs where I think having a, 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 a BB, an OBM certificate would serve you well in, in terms of trying to get bootstrapped into a leadership development program. And I think you'd have the right side of, right set of skills to really shine at something like that. Well, and so another way for people to get into this too and learn more is ask about volunteering at these conferences. Oh. probably going to be the best way for some of, you know, some of these people who are interested in different fields outside of, you know, the ABA, the clinical ABA route. Yeah. It's like being on the membership committee. You see, you shake hands with everybody. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I mean, and typically the registration is paid for in depending on the conference, you may actually get to go to some of the sessions. You may get to go to the networking events. You so reach out Absolutely. to the conferences and volunteer, get your foot yeah. in the door. Absolutely. Well. And I know I kind of interjected there. Yeah, that's all right. We're basically, you know, after that, I basically, uh, I've been, uh, QSE, it's, it's just been a tough time for BBS consulting businesses, and I haven't continued to really aggressively promote it. I thought about trying to turn it over to somebody else or get some other people to take the reins over, and I just decided that was going to be more work than I wanted to commit to in my retirement. Um, I took a retirement job with DECRA. They, they brought me on as a BBS thought leader, and I, I stayed with them for a year. It was like a quarter-time position. I was working 10 hours a week. Sweet retirement gig, really. Um, but I left them after a year, and, and I, I really – I've got retired on my, on my uh, signature line from, from – uh, uh, outlook now, <laughs> uh, but I also, I'm, I'm excited. Some of, you know, I've recently joined, uh, with ABA tech just to assist in their efforts to provide BBS training. And, and they have, uh, uh, Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, ABA tech has, has, uh, purchased 
the, the quality safety edge is uh, intellectual property, and they are looking to build a set of, of online courses. And I'm real excited to be assisting in that effort and to see something be done with the fruits of my labor, so to speak. <laughs> and I know this is just from you know, my personal work and meetings that we've been in, we're very excited to be able to continue your work as well and getting this out there and providing this kinds of the, these kinds of trainings to people who are, are asking for it. They're asking where to find these kinds of trainings. And so it's very exciting. I've, I'm very excited to jump in on some of it too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Thought Leaders. Come back next month as we ask Dr. McSween where he sees the field going and or where he would like to see the field go. And as always, if you have questions, comments, feedback, or suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us at operainnovations at abatechnologies.com.